0: you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NeuroFrontiers, produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. Your host is Dr. Anthony Alessi, fellow of the American Academy of Neurology and stroke program director at the William Bacchus Hospital in Norwich, Connecticut. We heard recently about meningiomas after actress Mary Tyler Moore had one removed. What are the signs and who's at risk Dr. Lynn Taylor is an Associate Clinical Professor of Neurology at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle and Fellow of the American Academy of Neurology. She's also a member of the Editorial Board of Neurology Now, the Academy's free magazine for neurology patients and caregivers. Dr. Taylor, welcome to REACH MD. Thank you, Tony. Can you explain to us and our listeners exactly what a meningioma is?
1: So meningiomas are very common tumors that more typically occur in women than in men. And, of course, they arise from the meninges or the coverings over the brain. And so you can have a meningioma of the brain or you could also have a meningioma near the spinal cord. And these are benign tumors that compress the brain and create symptoms based on their size and then their location within the nervous system.
0: What are some of the typical symptoms that someone will present with with a meningioma?
1: Well, actually, I would say in my practice, probably one of the most typical symptoms is no symptom at all. So it's very, very common because headaches are so common to see women with headaches who have an imaging study to find the cause for headache, and instead you find a small meningioma. And so one of the most difficult conversations is with an individual who has headache, who's had a an imaging scan to explain why the headache is there, and then you have to explain that you found a meningioma that actually is asymptomatic and has nothing to do with the headache. So I would say asymptomatic small meningiomas are quite common, but in terms of symptomatic meningiomas, meningiomas that give you symptoms, most commonly would be seizures, and that would be a, probably a focal motor or a focal sensory seizure, of the portion of the brain immediately underlying the meningioma.
0: When you have to tell someone you have this incidental finding of a meningioma, obviously it makes the patient somewhat nervous. What do you do to try to allay their fears somewhat?
1: Well, I'm very image-driven, and I use a lot of three-dimensional models. So I think when people are able to read their own scans, I teach my patients how to read their MRI scans, and most of them can read their MRI scans better than their non-neurologic physicians. So I, I think that gives them a lot of control over the topic. I show them meningiomas of various sizes. I show them that large meningiomas create a lot of mass effect and midline shift in edema within the brain. So we spend a lot of time looking at the flare sequence, which is an MRI sequence, which is very specific for brain edema. And if I can show them how tiny the meningioma is and explain why and how I know it's not creating symptoms, usually people become much more relaxed about the presence of the meningioma.
0: Will you follow up an incidental finding of a meningioma with another MRI? And and if so, how soon would you do that?
1: Right. So I take my lead from the patient there, and we talk about that a lot because there's a question of how cost-effective it is to follow up small meningiomas closely. If people are understandably anxious after the first, knowledge that they have a meningioma, will often do it in a fairly short time interval, three months or six months, but then I really try to help the patient tell me what they're comfortable with, and I try to move people then to the next scan being in a year or maybe even two years, or if it's somebody who's really understanding that the meningioma is going to give them clinical symptomatology if it really grows to any great degree, I convince them to stop following it with MRI scans until they become symptomatic.
0: Is there a way of classifying these meningiomas other than benign and malignant?
1: That's actually quite tricky. So classification of tumors is much easier for gliomas, tumors that arise within the brain. There's not actually very good concordance in the meningioma world between what a meningioma looks like on a slide and how it behaves in a person. There is a grading system, a benign, atypical, and malignant, but usually it's the presence of invasion of the brain, so the meningioma, instead of pushing the brain away, can actually invade into the brain, and if there's invasion of that meningioma into the brain, then it is usually classified as a malignant meningioma, but that is very uncommon, and the vast majority of meningiomas, greater than 90%, are benign.
0: Well, you talked about women being at risk. Are there other patient populations who are more at risk for having a meningioma?
1: No, it's mostly adults. Kids don't typically get these tumors, so it's adults. And it's women, probably middle-aged and postmenopausal women between the ages of 35 and 75.
0: What goes into your decision about whether to recommend someone have surgery or not?
1: Primarily if they're symptomatic. So it would be very uncommon for me to recommend surgery in somebody who's asymptomatic. So presuming that you've had a seizure or that you have a weak leg or half of your body's numb, some sort of symptom that we can connect to the size and location of the meningioma. And if it's in an easily removable part of the nervous system, so convexity meningiomas, meningiomas that occur basically above the ears, those are usually cured by surgery. So If you were to have a large symptomatic meningioma in that location, we would definitely recommend surgery, whereas if it's a meningioma at the base of the skull, where, of course, there are a lot of cranial nerves and carotid arteries and vascular structures, we'd be much more likely to recommend either radiation therapy or just observation.
0: Are there any medical conditions that put people at higher risk for a meningioma?
1: Yes, so neurofibromatosis is a genetic and inherited condition where people can get multiple meningiomas, that's probably the most common one.
0: When we think of neurofibromatosis, obviously we think of a more dramatic presentation, but can you see someone presenting with a meningioma and fairly subtle symptoms of neurofibromatosis other than that?
1: Absolutely, yes. And so you have to keep a high index of clinical suspicion, and I would say probably anytime somebody presents with multiple meningiomas, you have to question whether they have neurofibromatosis, and sometimes when they have multiple meningiomas, you could have one large meningioma, and then all the other meningiomas could be very tiny, sometimes sub-centimeter size, so you really have to look through the scans and scrutinize them very carefully.
0: Dr. Taylor, I'd like to continue with this, but if you're just tuning in, you're listening to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and joining us to discuss meningiomas is Dr. Lynn Taylor. Dr. Taylor is an associate clinical professor of neurology at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle and fellow of the American Academy of Neurology. Lynn, getting back to the issue of neurofibromatosis, does this in some way affect whether or not surgery is performed, and are there other treatments other than surgery for these meningiomas?
1: I would have to say in the individual patient involved, most of the time it does not affect our decision to treat that patient. It really has more to do with just the whole family history and patients' concern about their children and their grandchildren and whether they have a condition that they can pass down to others, it doesn't really affect whether I recommend radiosurgery or radiation therapy, surgery, or clinical observation. It is possible sometimes for the surgeon to take out multiple meningiomas at the same time. So if the multiple meningiomas are all clustered together, they can actually attempt to take out more than just one. But you might be tempted to do that whether somebody has neurofibromatosis or not. So I I wouldn't say it really makes that much difference in the individual patient.
0: Let's talk a little bit about radiosurgery for meningiomas. Is it very effective?
1: That's a very good question and a very hard question to answer because when you think about it, meningiomas are generally present for many, many decades. And most of the ways that we evaluate clinical trials is whether a tumor shrinks, whether it vanishes. So to know whether we stabilize the growth of a meningioma really requires clinical trials that go out 20, 30, or 40 years. And obviously, many of us may not still be practicing or even be alive to know whether that treatment was effective. So clinical trials for meningiomas have been fraught with difficulty because of that long period of observation. So it's very hard to know. It's certainly true that meningiomas in certain locations in the brain, the parasagittal area between the frontal lobes, actually patients with tumors in that location kind of close to a venous Drainage area, sometimes they're worse with stereotactic radiotherapy. And I've had a handful of patients who've chosen radiosurgery for a subfrontal meningioma. And what happens there oftentimes is the stereotactic radiosurgery works very well. The tumor starts to shrink, but then you get this pseudo progression change where the tumor rapidly swells, and then you develop edema in both frontal lobes, intractable seizures, epilepsy, partialis continua, or status epilepticus, and I've had a number of patients just develop really uncontrolled brain edema and then ultimately have to go on to surgery. So in some locations, stereotactic radiosurgery is not ideal. In other locations, if the tumor is small, it's an excellent technique.
0: Are there clinical trials ongoing toward the treatment of meningiomas currently?
1: There are. There are not very many, and whenever a patient is interested in looking at a clinical trial for meningioma, we have to always go back to clinicaltrials.gov and see what kind of clinical trials are open at the moment. Hydroxyurea is a chemotherapy drug that has been tried in the past somewhat unsuccessfully for meningioma, and there are a couple of clinical trials right now using hydroxyurea and sort of more or newer anti-biological agents like Gleevec to try and affect protein signaling or other ways to slow down the growth of the meningioma, but these are small trials. They accrue maybe 20 patients, and they're not practical for the vast majority of our patients because you have to be able to travel to the institutions that have these clinical trials open at whatever time it is that you search for them.
0: What percentage of your patients actually require treatment for a meningioma?
1: That would be hard to answer because it would depend on how long I follow them. I would say if you're asking me about patients that I've followed over the last 20 years with large meningiomas that may have been asymptomatic initially, probably 40 to 50 percent will ultimately need either surgery or radiation therapy. But it It's a really tough question to answer because it really depends on the size and location of the meningioma. And if you're newly diagnosed at the age of 80 with a one-centimeter meningioma, the likelihood that you're going to need treatment in your lifetime, of course, is probably zero, whereas if you're young and it's very large and over an eloquent brain area, then the likelihood is, is very high, probably closer to 75%. How many
0: patients would you say, and it's hard to speculate on this, but... You know, so many of these meningiomas are found, as you explained at the outset, as an incidental finding, where you may be doing a scan for some other problem, like a headache, a persistent headache, and find this incidental meningioma. But if you were to speculate, really, how many people go undiagnosed with a meningioma? Do you think that's a much larger population than we think right now?
1: Absolutely. I would bet it's hundreds of thousands of people, if not more than that
0: any role for prophylactic anticonvulsant medications with a meningioma that you might be proposing watchful waiting for? And if so, what would you choose?
1: I would say absolutely not. That's been very well studied in a meta-analysis uh, that was published by the American Academy of Neurology in a position paper or practice parameter. That was actually in gliomas, parenchymal brain tumors, not in, not in meningiomas. But the point was made that it's very clear that if You've never had a seizure. Taking prophylactic anticonvulsants does not prevent you from having a seizure. So I would never treat a patient with a meningioma who's not had a seizure with anticonvulsants.
0: And someone who's had a seizure, any particular anticonvulsants that you
1: prefer? No, I think we have a lot of good anticonvulsants. Obviously, many of us in the world of neuro-oncology have, without much evidence actually, turned to levetiracetam or Keppra primarily because it doesn't have a lot of cognitive side effects. It tends not to fight with chemotherapies that might be enzyme-inducing in the liver, and we can ramp up the dose really quickly so it's easy to use in somebody who's symptomatic, but it really doesn't matter what anticonvulsant you use as long as you use one drug and use it appropriately in the lowest effective dose.
0: I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Lynn Taylor, Assistant Professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle and member of the Editorial Board of Neurology Now. Dr. Taylor, thanks again for being our guest today on NeuroFrontiers.
1: You're welcome, Tony. You've been listening
0: to NeuroFrontiers on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. NeuroFrontiers is produced in cooperation with the American Academy of Neurology. For more information about this or any other show, please visit reachmd.com, which now features on-demand podcasts.